As I begin, I want to share a time in my life that I was apathetic. I think we all have times in our lives where we've done things maybe without much enthusiasm and things like that. This particular moment in time happened when Christina and I, it was our first year of marriage, we were in an apartment, uh, and, and all of a sudden I hear Christina yelling in the kitchen. Now how our apartment was laid out, I was like in the living room watching something or reading something on the couch, something like that, and you couldn't see into the kitchen what was going on. So Christina's yelling in the kitchen, and I'm just sitting there, no big deal. Well, after some time, Christina comes out and yells at me for not doing anything. She said, why? I was yelling, why weren't you helping me? To which I responded, you always yell in the kitchen, right? When she was learning how to cook some things, she was trying some things out. Um, there was a little fire that had erupted. Finally, I kind of saw what was going on because uh, smoke was coming out of our kitchen. We had to open the door. It was everywhere. The, uh, the apartment complex, people were trying to figure out what was going on. And so she was yelling in the kitchen. Now, this was a, like a normal occurrence the first couple years of our marriage. And so I responded by not doing anything. Now, Christina wanted me to make sure that I said, if I share that story, to let you know that she no longer yells in the kitchen. However, we still have fires from time to time, so if you, ever come, if you ever come over to our house, just, you know, be careful. At least you got a mask on now, so maybe, maybe you're all right. Well, what did I do? Like, I just sat there, didn't do anything, because, it, you know, to me, it was like no big deal. Now, I share that story as we continue our series, well, really end our series this morning in the Seven Churches of Revelation. We're going to be looking at this question. What does apathetic faith look like? What does it look like for you and for me to be apathetic in our relationship with Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not quite sure about what it means to follow Jesus, you might be like, what does it look like to actually follow him? I think all of us would say, we don't want to be apathetic, right? We don't want to be apathetic. We don't want to maybe not care. We don't want to do these things, but how do we know if we're there? And what do we do about it? What can we do about it if we find ourselves in a season of our faith being apathetic? And so this morning, we'll be in Revelation chapter 3. Again, we're ending our series in the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation's an awesome book. Uh, Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are particularly addressed to the seven churches that this book is written to. But in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's talking about specific issues uh, that that, that they are dealing with. Uh, This morning, we'll be looking at Laodicea. Now, I want to give you one piece of background information that'll make this text more relevant, and then we'll get into it. Uh, The major weakness for the city of Laodicea, which, like the other six churches of Revelation, is now located in modern-day western Turkey, was their water supply. So the the water was undrinkable in the region in which they lived, and so they had to rely on aqueducts that were built, you know, throughout the Roman Empire to pipe in water that they can drink from. The problem was the cold water that they would want was from the region of Colossae, maybe about seven-ish miles away, and by the time it got there, it was no longer cold, and then the hot water came from a region called Heropolis, where they had a lot of hot springs, and so by the time the hot water got to Laodicea, it also was no longer hot. The water, in both instances had become lukewarm, which isn't really useful. I mean, it's good for drinking, but back in that time period, you wanted cold water uh, because it was refreshing and to cool you off, and you wanted warm water for bathing or medicinal use. And so lukewarm water, while you could drink it, wasn't as valuable as hot or cold water. And so that's the reference behind what we're going to see this morning. And I also would say this, uh, the last six churches that we've been looking at were interesting. We learned some things, try to apply them to our modern-day context. Uh, In my opinion, the Church of Laodicea is the most relevant letter for us today. In the American Western world in which we live, we're going to see, I think if there was a letter maybe written to us about the dangers that you and I could face in a 21st century American context, this is what we would read. And so it's highly relevant to us. And so we'll begin uh, verse 14. Here is what John and his revelation from Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. It says this. 
It says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So again, this is a message from Jesus to the church of Laodicea. Amen means true. Uh, it's this uh, connotation of the confirmation of everything that he's going to be said here is true. It's the assurance of all of his promises. And this is the amen and the originator. Now, in antiquity, originator or first meant divine, um, or it meant uh, that they were the created. They were the one that created everything. So it's not saying that like Jesus was the first person to be created or whatever. He's saying that he has always existed and he has created everything uh, that we're a part of. And his words again are true. And here is what he says to the church in Laodicea, verse fifteen. He says, "I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold." I wish that you were hot or cold or hot, right? They're never hot nor cold, but what does he want? He wants them to actually be hot or cold. He doesn't want them to be lukewarm like the water supply that they are experiencing. Now, what's interesting here, um, you may have, if you've, I don't know, grown up in or around church, you may have this idea that you get from that's, that's taken from this pa- uh, passage that it's a bad thing to be cold. What you really want to be is you want to be hot, right? You want to be on fire for Jesus. So you don't want to be lukewarm, and you certainly don't want to be cold. Now, that's not actually what's going on here. Actually, what's going on here is that lukewarm is useless, but it is actually good to be either hot or cold. And in fact, in antiquity, particularly in this region of the world, cold water was more valuable because you can warm up, uh, you can warm up water a lot easier than you can cool it down, especially when there's no air conditioning or freezers or anything that in that time period. What he's saying here is that he wants them to be cold or hot. He wants them to be something. But right now, they're not really doing anything in their faith, right? He doesn't want them to be kind of useless like this lukewarm water is. And again, the point here is that they want the water to serve a purpose, and it's not. And their faith is also doing the same thing. The problem here is that they need to decide what to do, right? Are they just kind of going with the flow, or are they actually going to follow Jesus? It kind of reminds me, maybe to put it in modern context, if you know me, you know I'm a big college basketball fan. And so whenever I meet somebody who moves to the Raleigh area for the first time, I ask them, do they have a team? And if not, they have to pick one, right? You, have, you got three options. You've got Duke, you've got Carolina, and you have NC State. Now, I say three options because I want to be very nice to our NC State grad. You really have two options. And you have, if you want to choose a winner, you've got NC State. It's kind of like the little brother that every once in a while, like, makes a shot. And you're like, yay, good job. Right? But, like, so you have three, but, like, you really have two, right? And so I'll talk to people, and, and some people will say, well, I'll just pull for both because, you know, I'll pull for the home team or the ACC conference, and that's where we live. Like, I just want to cheer. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like, that's, it's not an option to be like, ah, oh, whoever. Like, you actually have to pick. And I'll, I'll never forget Brian, who many of you know, he's on staff here. He preached for us last Sunday. When him and Brittany first moved down to the Raleigh area, this is before New City began. We're kind of in the launch phase, if you will. And I kind of, again, had the same conversations with them. Who do you like? You got to pick a team. Now, they don't really care very much. And so they're like, at first, Brian was like, yeah, I'll just pick for both. I'm like, no, you can't do that. You have to pick. And so they decide a couple weeks later, Duke and Carolina were going to be playing each other. And so Brian tells me, whoever wins, that's who he'll pick. Now, this made me a little bit nervous because this particular year, Carolina was a little bit better than Duke. And so I'm like, but at least he's going to pick. And so we had some friends over to watch the game that night, and Brian and Brittany came. And Carolina won, to which Brian says, well, now I'm a Carolina fan. To which I said, well, you know, maybe it's okay to take some time. Like, maybe it's okay to just... (laughs) Well, the next time I see him, he has a Carolina shirt on. And I said, Brian, 
what I thought we were going to take some time to talk about this. He said as soon as the game was over, him and Brittany left, went to Walmart, and bought a Carolina shirt. Just to, and so, you know, I don't know if that goes against my point, but you got to choose, all right? That's the problem here, that they're kind of just going with it, and they're not kind of deciding what they want to do. Really, the point that we're seeing here is this, that apprenticeship to Jesus is an invitation to change. As we're going to read this text, what we see here is that apprenticeship to Jesus, following Jesus, is an invitation to change. Now, apprenticeship, you could say discipleship, however you want to define it. I think in our culture today, sometimes we can define discipleship as just like you just got to learn a lot of stuff. Like you got to learn the Bible and theology. You got to memorize verses. You got you to have all the right answers for like the Bible test. It's all an intellectual pursuit. And I think apprenticeship, at least in our context, better describes what that Jesus is after. Because apprentices, or even if you think of Jesus' original disciples, they didn't just learn things about God. They learned how to pray. They learned how to love people, right? They, they were impacted in every area of their lives. Apprenticeship to Jesus is not just about information transfer. It's about lifestyle change. And as we follow him, he's inviting us to experience that change through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's an invitation to change, not for us to stay where we are. I kind of think of it like this. When uh, we've got two uh, two kids, a five-year-old daughter named Finley and a two-year-old son named Roman. Let me preface what I'm about to say by saying I love my kids. They're awesome. I wouldn't trade them for the world, okay? So let me just say that. But I remember after we had Finley, we were 25 years old, so... We, we had Finley, and Finley was about, I don't know, six months old, and I'm holding her. And, you know, when you go from zero kids to one kid, that's a big difference, right? You know, you, you, you can't, you're not as free maybe as you were before. You, your lifestyle has to change. Everything that you do has to be around keeping this baby alive, right? And so, you know, obviously I'd experienced this change, but at one point I'm holding Finley, and I'm looking at her, and I have this thought in my mind. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is my life. For the next, like, 25 years, because we probably have a couple more kids, like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. Like, I've got to pay for this. For, for my ch- like, I, I, if I want to go do something, i got to make sure they're like, For the next, like, 25 years of my life, it's over. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, as kids get older, they become a little bit more independent. But I share that story because I was like, my life has changed for a very long time. Now, you could say, why didn't you realize that, you know, like, when you had the baby? And I did. But I didn't like, it didn't compute in my mind that this is it for a long time, right? Now, maybe that's not the best analogy because following Jesus is a good thing. But it is different. It changes your life. And it is not always easy, right? It, it is not always easy, right? Having kids are a good thing. Again, like I said, like you should have them. And they change your life. And it's hard. But if you have kids, here's what you know, right? You wouldn't train for the world, right? Following Jesus is an invitation to change. It's not always easy. Sometimes you will do things that you might not want to do or might not come natural to you, but that is what he's inviting us to do, and that's not what's happening in this situation. And so we'll continue. Here's what he says next in verse 16. He says, So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's a lovely illustration, right? What he's saying here is he's warning them that if nothing changes... They will be rejected by God. Why? Because they're not actually following him. They're not actually trusting Jesus. They're not actually pursuing him. One uh, commentator on this passage, uh, he translated it this way. It'll be on the screen to kind of understand how they would have understood the connotation of what he was saying. He puts it this way. He says this. He says, I want water that will refresh me, but you instead remind me of water you always complain about. You make me want to puke. Right, The context in which they live, the culture in which they live, that people were not too excited about the water supply was probably a common thing. It's kind of like 
Today, we, we, we don't know what to say to someone. We say, like, how's the weather? That's probably like their very normal thing. Oh, the water stinks today. Yeah, right? It was like, what you complain about is what your faith is looking like. What you're complaining about is what your faith is looking like. And what this tells us is this, that superficial faith is a counterfeit faith. Superficial faith is a counterfeit faith. It's not real. Like, we might claim Jesus and might say, I believe in God and Jesus is great and the Spirit's awesome and that sort of thing. But if it's not actually true then it's actually counterfeit. Now, let me be clear here. The goal here, and the goal for Jesus through John here, it is not to shame people. It's not to make people say, how dare you? You should, be a, you should feel terrible. You should feel guilty about what you're doing. And so you need to follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do. Now, what's happening here is he's simply realistically addressing the situation. right? He's not trying to say, you better follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do, or God's going to be mad at you, or trying to guilt you into do something. He's just trying to realistically address the situation that you might claim the name of Jesus, you might say you're a follower of Jesus, but, but your life and your internal motivations and your actions don't show that. But what it shows is kind of like this superficial faith, but when it gets tested, you find out it's not real. It's kind of like this. If you're a sports fan, you've probably done this. You know, everyone's probably done this. You probably can relate to this. Like, when your team wins, what do people often say when their team wins? We won, right? We did this. It was awesome. We did this. We did that. But then when our team loses, what do we say? They. They lost. They should have done this better. They didn't do this, right? Now, here's the reality situation. It is always they. Like, there ain't nothing you do for your team. Like, you wearing your lucky underwear or sitting on the left side of the couch, it means nothing. Like, your team's going to win or lose without you, right? But what do we do, right? When we win, we like to, we like to associate ourselves with that. But when we lose, we kind of distance ourselves from that. What he's saying here is that that's not, what it, that's not what following Jesus does for our lives. Superficial faith is a counterfeit faith. It's kind of lukewarm I'm kind of in, kind of out. And in the day means that we're not actually following Jesus the way that he's inviting us to follow him. And so here's what he says next because of these things. Here's what he says next in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Right? So here's what we need to understand about the, 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 the region of Laodicea. It was a very upper-class area, right? Again, it, it, they, they prided themselves on financial independence. In fact, you know, we know historically around 60 A.D., which is about 30 years before this letter was written, a massive earthquake hit Laodicea, and they actually rejected Roman uh, governmental aid to rebuild it. They said, we can do it ourselves. We don't need any help from outsiders. Again, this is kind of why Laodicea is a very uh, comparable, uh, comparable letter to maybe us in America today, that our country is a little bit more well-off, we are a little bit more independent than other countries might be able to do. And so what he's saying here is that, that, that essentially that the believers in Laodicea had taken on the culture in which they live, right? Because if we're not careful, that's what we all do. We, we take on the values and the beliefs of our situation, of our culture. And so just like the Laodicean culture in general thought that they didn't need any help, that they could do everything on their own. The church in Laodicea, likewise, doesn't understand their true spiritual state. Right? They think they can do it on their own. They think they don't need any help. They don't understand what things are actually looking like for them. And so when it says that they are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked, as we're going to see in a second, this is surely a critique of some of the cultural beliefs that were going on in their society. So, for example, it was they were known for three things, Laodicea. One is the financial state, again, a more upper-class region of the Roman Empire. Uh, they had a really well-known medical school that specifically uh, worked with creating this eye salve for ointments and eye sores. 
And they also had clothing manufacturing uh, that they manufactured clothes for, for, again, mostly for the upper class in society. So they have all these things. And yet what does Jesus through John say? That you're actually poor. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You think that this eye ointment helps people can see, but you're actually blind. And you have this clothing manufacturing, but you're actually naked, right? You think you are all these things, but spiritually you are nothing. Like you need me. And so here's what he says they need to do. Verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me, so through Jesus, gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you might be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Again, from Christ, he's saying this is where you ought to find and buy, if you will, accept, receive your true wealth. Not from you trying really hard, not from you kind of going with the flow, but from Jesus. And he gives, again, specific examples. He says you need to buy the, he said, what does he say? What does he say? That's a good question, Dylan. He says, gold or find a flyer so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed. These, this is going to be a contrast, again, in their culture today. They didn't drink the water, but it's believed that the, the, the water supply that they drank make the, made the sheep's uh, uh, wool dark. For whatever reason, it's probably, that's probably the reason, but the sheep's, had, the sheep's wool in this area had a darkish gray. And so a lot of the upper class society that they made this clothes for had this kind of dark gray material. And so when he says white clothes, he's not saying like white clothes are better, but it's meant to be a contrast, right? You think that these dark grayish clothing materials make you rich, but you actually need white clothes from me. You need to see the difference between what I'm offering you and what you get from your culture. When he talks about their shameful nakedness, again, nakedness in ancient times is not just a a reference of not having clothes on, but it's also this idea of, of deep humiliation and deep shame. When he's saying, without me, this is your spiritual condition. Right? You need clothes that I can provide. Again, when he talks about the ointment so that they may speak, or ointment to spread on their eyes so that you may see, he's talking about their spiritual blindness and most certainly, again, contrasting that uh, with their eye ointment that came from this region of the Roman Empire, right? That you, you actually can receive sight, not by from what, all the things that you're trying to do, but through me. Uh, Craig Keener, in his commentary on these two, on this, on, well, on chapter three, but it's specifically these two verses. Here's what he says. It'll be on the screen. He says, Jesus' challenge to the Laodicean Christians' self-sufficiency in verse 17 and 18 that we just read reminds us how readily we Christians absorb the attitudes of our culture without pausing for critical reflection on this behavior, right? If we're not ca- uh, careful, what happens? We, we simply absorb the value systems, the beliefs, the ideologies of our culture. And if we don't critically take time to see, man, is this good for me? Is this, does this help me follow Jesus? Are there changes that I need to make? We can become like our culture. Again, as I said when I began, it would seem to me that the rebuke of the Laodicean church is the most comparable to our American situation and our context. It's not that we're necessarily going out of our way to kind of reject God or to do our own thing, but because if we're not careful, we absorb our cultural ideologies and beliefs without seeing, I mean, how is this going to hinder or help our relationship with Jesus? In other words, what we're seeing here is this, that apprenticeship to Jesus is a choice. Apprenticeship to Jesus, following Jesus, it's a choice. Now, again, if you're like more like theologically, well, well, God saves us, or like, or do we choose our salvation? Like, however it works, regardless of like what you think it looks like for the Spirit to convict us and for us to follow Jesus, all of us would agree that we have a part to play in that. 
right? We have a part to play in responding to God's grace in our life. We have to make a choice. Are we going to follow him? Are we going to pursue him? Are we going to allow him through the power of the Spirit to change our lives? Or are we going to continue on our own way? It's kind of, you can kind of think of it like this way. I don't, I don't know if this is the best analogy, but it's an analogy. Whenever you sign up for like an online service or product, right, you've got like a free 14-day trial or a free 30-day trial, what do you have to do to get that trial? Right, you have to submit your credit card information. Now, when I was a kid, before, you know, I'm a ripe old age of 30, but like 10 years ago, before you could sign up for free trials without putting your credit card information in. But now you have to do it, right? And what happens at the end of the free trial? They thank you, right? If you don't cancel it, you had to pay. And here's the deal. I think a lot of times we're banking on this idea that they'll just forget about it. In other words, if you don't want to continue using this product or service, then what do you have to do? You have to go in and cancel it, right? Otherwise, you get charged. And what that means is a non-choice is a negative choice, right? If you don't go in and cancel it, you got to pay for something you might not want. That might not be the perfect analogy, but following Jesus is the same way, right? A non-choice is a choice. We either say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I'm not perfect. I need his grace. I need community to come alongside me and help me in this pursuit. Or I'm going to reject Jesus, which is obviously a choice as well. Or I'm just kind of going to go with the flow. And what we see is that following Jesus is an active yes. Following Jesus, it's an active yes, right? Apathy is the end result of, is our, is our normal trajectory and a lot of things in life, right? Anything that is worth pursuing or achieving or getting better at or going after, you have to make an intentional decision, right? It doesn't happen on accident. Following Jesus is the same way. Growing closer to Jesus and following Jesus is not just happening because you've been a Christian for a long time, right? Following Jesus and growing in our relationship with him is an intentional decision to kind of lay aside our wants and our desires and to pursue him. This is why in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this in verses 13 through 14. It's a pretty well-known verse. He says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. What he's talking about, he's not just saying that Following Jesus can be difficult, which is true. He's also saying that the wide path is the path, is the natural, is the easy, is the kind of obvious path to go down. You have to intentionally decide to go a different direction. Otherwise, you will go down the path that everybody else goes down. You have to make a decision. You have to choose what you're going to want to do. It kind of reminds me that when Christina, uh, you know, when she's about to do the grocery shopping thing, and she says, Dylan, what do you want from the grocery store? To which I affectionately replied to her by saying, I don't care what you get as long as you get the stuff that I like, right? Because I don't eat to live, I live to eat, and I don't really care what you get, but make sure you get the stuff that I like. Now, is that helpful? Of course it is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not helpful, right? Because it's like, well, if you don't like it, then you can't complain about it, and don't you say, like, in three or four days, where's this thing, right? Because you didn't tell me about it, right? Because I got to make a, a choice. It's not just going to happen on accident, right? Following Jesus, apprenticeship to Jesus, is something that we have to decide that we're going to do through the help of the Holy Spirit. This is why, again, if we continue, here's what he says next in verse 19, right? After this kind of this rebuke about how they're lukewarm and how they're not following him the way that they might claim to be following him, he then says this. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What's interesting is that the church of Laodicea has the firmest rebuke of all the seven churches. And not only that, they have no commendation, right? They, nothing good is said about them other than you are lukewarm, you are not following me the way that you might claim to be, and this is not going to end well for you because you're not actually following and trusting in me. And so they have the firmest rebuke, they have no commendation, and yet what we see here is that Christ still clearly and desperately loves them, right? He's saying even if the church as a whole rejects me, or generally speaking, even if just some individuals say, no, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to give my life to you, they, they might do that and he will be there for them. But what I think is so fascinating, again, this, this, this rebuke, this hard rebuke, they're not doing anything well, at least not in this passage that we see. And what we see here, he says, but I will stand at the door and knock, right? He's encouraging us to let him in, if you will. Now, I don't know if, Megan, maybe you grew up in church and however you're tradition that you grew up in, you might kind of have this idea of like, you know, this pray this prayer, like open, accept Jesus into your heart, and he'll be there, and he'll like walk in. What's interesting here is that when we read this, a kind of a surface level reading, we kind of take this as understanding of like a stranger, like, hey, if I knock on the door, like make sure you open the door, and like let me in, but that's not how they would have understood this. How they would have understood this is that the connotation that the original readers would have heard this as is this idea of a master of a house who's knocking on the door and expects his servants to immediately respond and let him in. He's saying, I'm not coming as a stranger, hoping that, you know, it's like you got to look to the people, and it's like do you, if it's like a, someone like who's trying to sell you something, he's like, you tell the kids to be quiet so like no one, they don't think you're inside until they'll leave. But if it's someone you like, it's like, oh, come on in. It's not, it's not happening there. What he's saying there is that it's kind of the expectation that if you knew who was outside the door, all of us would rush to let him in. All of us would rush to be with him. And we see that there is this a grace-filled response because then when he says, I will come to him and eat with him and he, he and he with me, it's this idea, it's this Greek, the word here, it's kind of technical here, but I think it's helpful for us to understand. The, word, the Greek word eat here is depeneso, and it refers to the main meal of the day. So he's not saying, you know, come in and we'll kind of have a snack together. It's kind of like, you know, in our culture today, you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if someone invites you over to their house for dinner, it's not a rush thing. It's not a quick thing. It's not like 30 minutes and then you're gone. Typically, you hang out together. You have conversation. Hopefully, the food is good good, and there's no fire in the house when you come and eat it, uh, right? But it's, it's this idea. Again, it's this idea of a non-hurried but leisurely affair, right? That's the main meal of the day for them. What they're saying here is that Christ is offering them continued fellowship despite what they have been doing. Christ is offering them grace, He's not saying, how dare you? He's not saying, you better get your act together or else. He's saying, in spite of all of these things, I am here, and I will gladly meet and be with you if you would want that sort of thing. In other words, what we're seeing here is this, that Jesus responds to apathy with an invitation, not shame. What we see here is that Jesus responds to apathy to our spiritual indifference, whether that's where we are now, or maybe we're in a season of that, not with shame, but with an invitation, right? And this is what the gospel is. The gospel is good news, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, his perfect life on our behalf, where he defeated sin and the powers of darkness, so that anyone who would trust, follow, and experience him can eat with him, so that anyone can be with him. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord and has made it possible for us to do and to be a part of his kingdom, not because of us, but because of him. It's an invitation. It's not shame. 
And to that end, here's what I want to, we talk about this idea of the gospel and God's love. Here's what I want us to know, and here's what I want you to know, especially if you're struggling with this idea of like, I might have been apathetic for a while, or I'm not even sure if God loves me. Um, we, we might be familiar with this idea that God loves everybody, right? Scripture talks about it. Like we kind of like, well, God is love, so that's kind of what he has to do. What you need to understand this morning is that God does not just love you, but he likes you too. God doesn't just love you, but he likes you. And there's a difference there, right? So, for example, I love kids because everybody loves kids, right? But I don't really like kids. Like, I'm not. That sounds bad. Right? But here's the thing. I like my kids. Like, I love your kids. Your kids are awesome. But I like my kids, right? And if you have kids, you know the same thing, right? You think your kids are awesome too, so there we go, right? But everyone like, likes, that's right? But you actually like your kids. When, 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 Jesus, when God is referred to the Father more than anything else in, the, in, in all of Scripture, what is he saying? That you're not just some kid, but you're his kid. That God doesn't just love you because that's what God's supposed to do and God is love, but he actually likes you. Sometimes you might hear this, this phrase, which is technically true, but I think very incomplete. You might hear this idea that God uh, saves us in spite of us right? Which is technically true, right? Because there's, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace and his mercy and love. He saves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our shame, right? That's true. But the reason I don't think it's really fully true, because it gives this connotation that God saves you, or he saves us because he kind of has to. But the reason God saves us is because he genuinely loves us. He genuinely cares for us, that Jesus gladly gave up himself, that God all throughout human history, the moment sin entered in the world, had a plan to bring about redemption, not just because he's a God of love, but because he actually likes you. And so no matter where you are this morning, maybe you've been following Jesus well and things have been going well for you. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but this season has made you somewhat apathetic. Or maybe you're not even sure, does God even care? I've done so many bad things that he wants nothing to do with me. You and I need to understand that God not only loves you, but he likes you too. Jesus responds to apathy with an invitation, not shame. And so he closes by saying this. He says this in verse 21. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, right? To the one who conquers, we will have the right to be in his kingdom. How do we conquer? Not through self-determination, not through self-effort, not through doing all the right things and not doing all the wrong things. We conquer by accepting the invitation of Jesus to experience the life that only he offers. And so as I kind of wrap this up, kind of the main idea, as we kind of look at this warning to the Laodicean church, which I also think can be relevant to us in our American context, if we're not careful, here's what we would see. Here's what I would say, and that's this. That spiritual apathy equals spiritual death. At the end of the day, what we're seeing here is that spiritual apathy, spiritual indifference is spiritual death, right? Apathy is our normal trajectory. Unless God through his spirit convicts us and we respond to his grace, like this is where we're going to go, right? We don't follow Jesus. We don't grow closer to Jesus on accident. We don't uh, uh, grow. We don't, we don't experience God's goodness and the power of his spirit by accident, but it is a daily, weekly, monthly, uh, you know, a monthly reminder and pursuit of changing our hearts and our, and our affections to Jesus so that we can see and experience him. And in the times where we are apathetic, we don't have to run and hide. We don't have to let God cool down before we meet with him again. That always he's inviting us to, with an invitation to him and never with shame.
And so the question then becomes, if spiritual apathy equals spiritual death, the question is this, how are you stirring your affections for Christ? Right? If apathy is our normal, normal destination, then you and I have to do things that are stirring our affections for Christ. Here's the thing. One of the things that makes this uh, season of COVID and everything that's going on this year difficult is I think many of us unintentionally might have become apathetic with our faith because this is a very easy time to do so, right? Life isn't normal. We're not going to work or we're not going to school or, or we're not doing the things that we're used to be doing. So it can be very easy for us to think, well, in six months or a year, whenever life gets normal again, well, then I'll prioritize this. Well, then I'll do these things. But what we need to remember is that we are not just individuals who think things. We are emotional. We are relational. We are communal. We need to have regular practices in our life that stir our affections for Christ so we do not end up like the church of Laodicea, right? So a weekly gathering, whether in person or online, uh, maybe joining a community group if you're not a part of one because we need relationships, uh, having some sort of weekly rhythm of, of reading the Bible or praying, or many of us at New City on Tuesdays are fasting from breakfast or fasting through breakfast and lunch on Tuesdays to seek God and to pray to God and to remind ourselves our need for Him. Spiritual apathy equals spiritual death, which is our default destination. And so we want to put practices and things in our life that continue to stir our affections from Him. Why? Again, not because it's the right thing to do, not because God said you better do it or else, because in Christ, you and I have life. He's inviting them. He's rebuking them out of love to say, you're missing out on what God actually has for you. You're missing out on what the kingdom of God has for you, not just in the life to come, which will be amazing, but even now, when life is hard and difficult and we have questions and we have doubt, he's inviting us to see and experience him. Spiritual apathy equals spiritual death. And through Christ and the power of his spirit, he's inviting us to see and experience him. We serve a good God who responds to our shame with an invitation to love and to follow him. And he is always there when we turn to him. Spiritual apathy equals spiritual death. And he is inviting us in to so much more to anybody who would trust and follow in him. Let's pray.